Good morning, everybody. There you go. It's good to know you're here. Hey, I have news for everyone. It is, you're here. And it's May 22nd. And um, you know, the bugger is I haven't seen Bruce today. So do with that what you will. Um, he either had some inside information that he didn't share with us, um, or we're just, um, or maybe he'll make an appearance at some point. Apparently, we have until October 21st to get our, if there was a rapture yesterday, we have until October 21st to get our affairs in order. But in the event that it actually was a non-event, well, I'm glad we're here. And maybe like REM and Michael Stipe, we all feel fine this morning, don't we? Thanks for being here this morning. My name is Mark Dickman. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is week three of our series called Drift, where we're taking a look at a letter of the New Testament of the Bible called Galatians, and we're looking at what it has to say for us today, over 1,500 years later, um, after it was written. Let me give you a brief background. Just again, we've kind of covered this every week, but if you're new to the series, let's just give you a brief background. This is a real letter written to real people. And here we are in Charlotte, North Carolina today. This letter was written many years ago by a man named the Apostle Paul. He wrote it to real people living in a Roman province called Galatia. There were some churches there. And the Apostle Paul likely wrote it from the real town of Antioch in Syria, just due north of Jerusalem. He wrote the letter to these real people many years ago because they had taken a simple message that he had delivered to them on one of his missionary journeys, and this simple message of how to be made right with God, they had, they had complicated it. They had added to it. And so from writing in a real place of Antioch and Syria, he wrote a letter years later. This is about 25 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And to these real people living in what is now modern-day Turkey, he said, go back to the simplicity of what the message of Jesus is all about. And actually, it's interesting, in, in light of the timing of the alleged end of the world or rapture that was supposed to happen yesterday, the, you know, the folks who believed that the rapture would happen yesterday, really all that was about, they thought they were right with God. And Galatians is really what we're going to look at today is how you and I can be right with God and the inevitable drift in our lives, which takes us away from a very simple message. And so what we're going to do today as we are doing throughout this series, we are looking at this whole letter of Galatians, and we're going to cover the whole thing throughout this series, and we're going to look at a chunk of this letter today, and rather than reading all of this massive text, we're going to zero in on two key verses, and we're going to look at the text itself, and then we're going to look at, we're going to unpack this drift that this text talks about. And then we're going to look at the voice at the very end of how we respond to this text. So first of all, let's dive into a portion of the text itself. And what I'm going to do as we read through this part of Galatians, and if you have your Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2. If you have your iPad or your mobile reader, you can uh, open up version and go there as well. We're going to start with the bad news, and then we're going to go to the good news. So buckle up here first for the bad news. This is in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. And I'll unpack some of these terms, which may be a little confusing in just a sec. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not 
by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now here's the bad news, and here's the reality of what was happening at this time in Galatia. They had taken Paul's simple message of you're justified by Christ alone, and there were some folks who infiltrated the church and said, no, Jesus isn't alone. You have to do other things in order to be justified before God. And this group was saying you have to observe the law and you have to observe Jewish customs and ordinances and all this stuff. It's not, al- it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul was saying that's not at all true, and I'm going to tell you why. And throughout this big chunk of the letter of, of Galatians, he says two things in kind of uh, talking about what the law does not do. Now, when you and I hear the law, most of us in this room are not Jewish, so when we hear the term the law, that may be kind of an ambiguous uh, expression. But I'll get to kind of how we can zero into the law and kind of make it uh, applicable for us. Essentially, there's a big chunk of the Old Testament, which includes the Ten Commandments, which is the law. If you've ever tried reading through Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you know that there's a lot of legal stuff in there that seems kind of hard to relate to today. We'll, We'll make that simple in just a sec. First of all, though, Paul says, you and I are not, and to the Galatians, he said, you're not made right with God by observing the law. And here's reason number one. If you're a Jew, you're a child of Abraham. Abraham, a person from the early pages of Genesis, the father of the Jewish people. And the Jews in the church of Galatia would have said, absolutely, positively, Abraham was right with God. But Paul said, don't forget about your history here. The law given to Moses at Mount Sinai with blazing thunder and lights, the law came about 500 years after Abraham. So Paul said, how is it that Abraham could be made right with God when he lived before the law even existed? Because the Bible declares Abraham trusted in God's promises, Abraham believed in God, and that simple faith made him righteous before God. So Paul says, how does, where does the law come in that scenario? Abraham lived before the law, so how can he be made right before the law? It's silly. But then he kind of zeroes in even more. and says, even if you discard Abraham, none of us, and he says to the Galatians, none of you are capable of, of observing all the requirements of the law. The law is never designed to be something that we follow in obedience in order to get right with God. The law simply points us to the reality of how far short of God's perfect standard we fall. Now, Jesus unpacked this thought a little bit as well. Now, most of us in this room, again, let me just condense the law, this big term, the law. Let me just make it simple for all of us. Most in this room could name at least one, probably four or five of the Ten Commandments, which is included in the law. Things like don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, and so forth. Well, Jesus said, all right, most of you have heard the commandment, do not murder. But Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If any of you have called someone an idiot, if you've pulled a LeBron James and kind of whispered something underneath your breath at a press conference and had egg on your face and had to cover up for yourself later, if you ever had that moment where you chew out the person who's tailgating you on your way to work, if you ever had that sinking thought in the back of your mind that says, wouldn't it be great if two miles down the road I passed that guy because he's pulled off alongside the road because state trooper pulled him, wouldn't that be great? If we've ever had an evil thought towards someone else, Jesus says, guess what? 
you're a murderer. You may not have ever reached for a knife or a gun, but it doesn't matter. If you've ever had an evil thought in your heart, if you've ever even said idiot about anyone else, you're a murderer. That's how, that's how the standard of the law, that's how high it is. And Jesus said, I'll give you another one. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If any of you have looked lustfully at another person, you may not have even been in the same room with that person. If you've ever looked lustfully at another person, Jesus says, guess what? You've committed adultery with that person. That's the standard. And so the bad news for you and I is that this is a room replete with murderers and adulterers. The water's warm. Come on in. You and I are excellent lawbreakers. There is a standard, and we fall short of it all the time. That's the bad news. None of us, and Paul was saying this to the Galatians too, you can't be made right with God by observing the law because we'll always fall short. The, line was, the law was never delivered. The Ten Commandments were never given to make us right with God. They reveal the truth about God and the truth about us. But there's good news. And it may not sound like good news initially, but hang on, we'll get there. Toward the end of our reading today, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, again, it won't sound like good news initially, but hold on tight. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, is what we just talked about. We fall short of the law. So that what was promised through Abraham, the promise was that the whole world would be, would be blessed through Abraham because of this seed who would come. Jesus himself comes from the direct lineage of Abraham. So that was promised to Abraham, fulfilled through Jesus, being given through faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, he uses the term there, being a prisoner. And earlier, that verse that we read earlier about how you and I are justified not by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus, we're going to tie these two things together. Because prisoner and justified is all about the legal reality of where we stand before God. And so what I need you to do is kind of imagine a heavenly drama that's, that's unfolding in kind of a court case scenario. Because the word justified has the same root as justice. So we can't understand justification without justice, and it's all about the legal reality of how we stand before God. And some of this is something we're going to cover even next week. So here's the deal. I'm going to throw myself under the bus. I'll put myself in the scenario to take the pressure off you. In biblical theology, and Paul explains a lot of this in this particular letter, in biblical theology, this is what Christianity believes. Mark is the defendant. Mark takes the stand. The prosecuting attorney within Christian theology is a malevolent, real force in the world called Satan, the accuser, the evil one. And what the prosecuting attorney does is he brings his case before the judge. And in this case, the judge is the God, the Heavenly Father, perfect standard. And he's administering justice in this case. My defense attorney is Jesus himself. But first, the prosecution lays out the case against me. And the accuser lays out every rotten, terrible thing I've done or everything I shouldn't have done that I should have done. And as he is relentless in his attack against me of how far, under, how far I fall short of the perfect standard of the law. You know, I'm in the stand and I'm looking, yes, I did that. Yeah, I did that one too. I'm looking at my shoes at this point. 
What hope is there for me? Prosecution rests. But Jesus, as my defense attorney, says, Your Honor, all these things said about Mark are true. He's a fantastic rule breaker. He violates the law all the time. But when Mark was seven years old, he made a simple decision to put his faith in me. And at that moment, I became united with Mark. And when I came to earth, I lived the life that Mark could not live. Jesus would say, I followed the law perfectly. I didn't stumble over a single point of the law. I kept the law perfectly. And because I lived the life that Mark could not live, Mark deserved to die because of all the crimes he's committed. But because Mark is united with me, when I died on the cross, I died the death that Mark deserved to die because of his sin and rebellion. And in a very real way, because of that simple decision Mark made when he was seven years old, I was united with Mark. And when I died, Mark died. And when I rose again, Mark rose again. And my promise for him isn't just for a full and abundant life now, but for eternal life. Not because Mark kept the law, but because of what I've done on his behalf. And, Your Honor, because you demand absolute justice, you must set this man free. Because, as the song said, I paid it all. The gavel comes down, and God, who is the benevolent judge in this part, says, You're free. You are justified. You're acquitted. Case dismissed. And what we'll get to next week is even better news, because not only am I acquitted, but our good Heavenly Father has an inheritance for me and benefits, and He's going to throw the door wide open. He's going to throw a big party for me. That's next week. But for this part of the text, the prosecution screams an objection. What do you mean? Didn't you hear the case that I laid out against this guy? But Jesus paid it all. That's what justification is. Justification is a simple belief in what Jesus has done on our behalf, that we are made right with God, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And at this point, it's important just to press pause and for us all to understand that what Paul is outlining here is the essential difference between religion and Christianity. Religion, broadly speaking, is a system of belief of the things that you and I have to do to get right with God by our own achievement, by our own performance. Christianity says, again, we will never hit that target. We will always fall short. It's not the things that we do to get right with God. It's what God and Jesus has done for us. And so we connect with God and are made right with God, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. That is the single most important difference between religion and Christianity. Christianity is ultimately not a religion at all. Very important. Here's the trick, though. That was the text. Now we need to get into the drift. Because the trick is, a lot of you who have grown up in church, or a lot of you who have read the Bible, or a lot of you who, this may even be new information, that actually was the easy part, the intellectual stuff, the theological Christian doctrine about who Jesus is, what our sin is, 
it's actually pretty easy to know all that stuff. I mean, I know that stuff. I went to seminary. But in my life, and I suspect in yours, the difficulty has been and will always be having that theological reality of we are made right, we are justified because what, of Je- what Jesus has done alone, getting that to move from our brain to our hearts is the real trick. And there are, the drift happens in two particular ways. One, it happens in regards to how we think we're made right with God. And it also happens in regards to how we think we live our life and how we live our life day to day. We have this, we've inherited a tendency to just drift in general. And it happened from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve were created, they had perfect communion with God, perfect relationships with each other, perfect relationships with, with the environment, with nature. It was Eden. But it wasn't enough. God said, you've got everything, just don't go to the tree. And Adam and Eve said, God, we've got to have the tree. God said, please don't go to the tree. And Adam and Eve said, no, we've got to have the tree. And they ate the fruit of the tree, and literally all hell broke loose. And the earth and our lives had never been the same since. And we have inherited this natural, nasty tendency to drift away from the simple truths of God. Now, as it comes to our standing before God, this was very real to the Galatians. And again, for the Galatians, it was as simple as this. They said, it's Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. God observed the Ten Commandments. This is, what, this is the theological false teaching that was creeping into the Galatian church. It's Jesus plus obeying the Ten Commandments, plus following all the Jewish customs, You're made right with God by following the Ten Commandments, getting circumcised, uh, eating kosher foods. You know, if you're a guy, sorry, you know, the snip-snip. Eating kosher foods, following all the right uh, rules and regulations. That's how you get right with God. And, you know, as hard as we may be on the Galatians, when it comes to our standing before God, you and I do, uh, especially if you're a Christian, we can do the same things. We can say that God isn't enough. Maybe circumcision and eating kosher foods isn't the big deal. But when it comes to our standing before God, our justification, so often Christianity can devolve, evolve into it's Jesus, plus I've got to read my Bible, plus I've got to volunteer, plus I've got to you know, say nice things, help my neighbor, I've got to do all these other things. Because really, when it comes down to it, if we were asked, you know, are you justified before God? A lot of us in our honest moments would say, gosh, I hope so. Yeah, I believe, what you, I believe in Jesus, but gosh, I hope I've done enough. Because you and I have a natural tendency to add things. And so often, the free gift of grace devolves into idolatry. Good things in our life that we make into ultimate things. Good things like reading the Bible becomes an ultimate thing. I didn't read my Bible today. I wonder what God thinks of me. I wonder if I'm going to gosh, I got a flat tire today. Was that because I didn't pray enough? We think thoughts like that. And in our anxious moments, we really wonder, is our standing before God determined by the things that we do plus Jesus? But there's a larger existential reality even beyond that. We can also also drift 
from a core message of our identity. Because what the Bible says, as far as our identity, for that person who is justified, you have become, and Bruce will get into this again next week, you've become an adopted son or daughter. Your identity is not in what work thinks about you. Your identity is not what your family or your friends think about you. Your identity is not what the scale tells you. Your identity is not what the mirror tells you. Your identity is not what your latest performance review tells you. Your identity is an adopted child of God. But so often we don't believe that either as we live out the implications of the gospel. Bruce's favorite verse in this entire letter is a verse that we're going to come back to all the time. It's for freedom that Christ set you free. For freedom. It's not for anxiety that Christ set you free. It's not for fear that Christ set you free. It's not for insecurity that Christ set you free. It's for freedom. And when we let good things, like our job, like our relationships, like our house, like our car, like our bank account, morally neutral and good things, when they become ultimate things in our life, the existential reality of the drift is that you and I start not to trust God at all. We don't. We may say and believe, we may say the right things, but when it comes down to it, how we live out our justification, so often we're trapped. And you can find yourself drifting toward thoughts of, maybe I really don't have it. Maybe I'm really not enough. What if this happens? What if I don't get, what if that person thinks, fill in the blank. We do it all the time. We drift away from the core teaching about how we're justified, and we drift away the core rea- from the core reality of how we live out our justification. It's inevitable. Some friends of mine and I have been challenging each other with a simple exercise. Tamara Park gave me an essay a couple uh, months ago, and one of the core um, challenges, exercises in the essay was uh, to look at the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm is familiar to many of you. The, the 23rd Psalm starts with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or, The Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. And this particular writer, who we'll get to in just a sec, he said, What if you said, what if you created some time in your life and just said that three times? And what if you lived out of the reality of that simple verse? What if you really believed? that Jesus was your good shepherd and you had everything you needed in him. What if you really believed that? What if I really believed that? Is there any room for anxiety and fear and worry if we really believed that Christ is our good shepherd and in him we have everything we need? Life is exceedingly difficult. Jesus promised that it would be so. And we have this tendency to drift. But God, the good judge, the heavenly father, invites us back and calls us back to himself. And this is why it is so important that you and I create quiet space, slow space in our life to hear from God. Not as a thing that we have to do to earn our justification, not as a thing that we do to get in good with God, 
but to create quiet, intentional space in our life simply to hear from the voice of God. Because our minds will be filled with all sorts of other voices telling us all sorts of crazy things. We live freely when we hear the voice of God. Henry Nouwen, who was the source of the Psalm 23rd exercise I told you about, uh, just before his death, he was a Catholic priest, he died in 1996, and just before his death, he wrote a very profound essay that's kind of made its way through uh, the warehouse community in some ways, and if you'd like it, talk to me afterwards, I'll send it to you. Nouwen says this, you and I have to listen to the voice who calls you and I the beloved, the beloved son, the beloved daughter, because otherwise you and I will run around begging for affirmation, begging for praise, begging for success, and then we're not free. Is that not descriptive of our lives? But when we create slow, intentional space in our life to hear from God, we can live out the freedom of our justification. Just before, uh, as Jesus was baptized, dramatic scene where Jesus is baptized and he hears from heaven the voice of his heavenly Father who says, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. Jesus walked through life, through incredible difficulty in life, secure in his identity as the father's beloved son. And he invites us into that same relationship. Just before he died, Jesus, with his closest friends, actually said a prayer for you and me. Those who would come thousands of years after him. He prayed for us. And his prayer was that you and I would be united to God just as he was. That you and I would share the same intimacy of connection that he had. That, is the, that was the greatest desire of Jesus, so much that he prayed for it. That we would be connected to God in such a way that we would hear the voice of a good father saying, you are my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, and in you, I am well pleased. I'll give you your identity. I sent my son to give you your justification. I sent my son to allow you to live freely as someone who is justified, if you simply believe. You're my beloved son, my beloved daughter. Oh, that we would create space in our life to drown out the noise long enough to be reminded of that core reality because that's what God invites us into, which will keep the drift from happening. You know, in fairness to all of us, the Apostle Paul himself drifted through a, an agonizing part of his life, and we know very little about the specifics of it. The Apostle Paul went through later in his life uh, and actually a recurring, persistent issue in his life that was excruciating for him. And Paul needed to create time and space in his own life where he records he heard very clearly the voice of Jesus say, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. 
And out of that simple truth, justified freely by God's grace, Paul finished his life. Now, one of the members of our own community, Jennifer McGee, is uh, experiencing kind of that reality. And Jennifer was baptized on Easter Sunday along with three others. We saw two of the videos on Easter Sunday, and you're about to see Jennifer's. And you'll get a sense for the things that she's learning in process and some of the ways that God dynamically met her in her own baptism. And I give you this challenge. If you have not been baptized, consider Jennifer's story and see how it might intersect with your own. Like Jennifer, some of you maybe are ready for that next step. Jennifer took that step at Easter. Something profound happened in her life in the weeks leading up and on Easter Sunday when she experienced her baptism. And some of you are, are ready for that also. Maybe you've never been baptized like Jennifer. Maybe you've been baptized as an infant, but you don't remember it, and you're ready to kind of make your faith your own. If that's a desire of your heart, we invite you to fill out one of those drift cards and let us know about your desire to have a conversation with someone about baptism. You know, one of the things that was profound, I think, about what Jennifer was saying is, you know, as a, as a student, she's learning to spend time learning from God and listening that uh, God's not adding things. God's not trying to complicate things in her life. But through justification and through living freely because of that, God is trying to make things very simple. And that there's a core truth that Jennifer has heard and continues to hear and that we are invited to hear as well about our real standing before God. Adopted sons, adopted daughters that we'll get into next week, but beloved. People who aren't just justified, but people who are relentlessly pursued by God because God's love is that great. And as we move into this time of worship where we're going to sing some songs that talk about that pursuit of God and how we can live freely out of that justification, uh, we invite you to participate. And we're going to take an offering, and we do so not because it's one more thing that we do to get right with God. We take an offering as an opportunity to respond because God has been generous to us we have an opportunity to, out of gratitude, respond to him. So we invite you to participate and, partic and invite you to engage in these songs as they complement what we've talked about, about how to live openly and freely, not of who God says that we are.